0: Hey, everyone. It's Tom Hoare. Welcome back for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast series. We've got a great episode for you today, especially if you like history, because this episode is a little bit of history about our bank, BNY Mellon. Now, some of you may know BNY Mellon just celebrated our 237th Founders Day in June. Our firm's journey began on June 9th, in 1784 when Alexander Hamilton saw the need to establish a national bank to provide liquidity as the newly formed United States struggled to rebuild after the Revolutionary War. So we thought with Independence Day approaching here in the United States, what better time than now to bring you a very special conversation that takes a look at BNY Mellon's founding and how our centuries-old institution really began at the founding of the United States and then went on to influence subsequent centuries of financial history. We could think of no one better to bring you this discussion than our very own CEO, Todd Gibbons. Todd is not only CEO, he's probably one of the people most passionate about our firm's history. He's been with our firm for more than three decades, having served in a number of leadership roles here at the bank. And in this conversation, he sits down with Dr. Richard Silla. Dr. Silla is a professor emeritus at New York University's Stern School of Business. He's a prolific author and a leading expert on financial and economic history. He's the chair of the Museum of International Finance, and he spent decades researching not only our firm's history, but also how our firm has had a unique vantage point into global capital markets and how our firm and others actually shaped economic history and the development of the financial services uh, well beyond Wall Street. And in the conversation, you'll hear about BNY Mellon's 237 years of innovation. They discuss milestones such as the Bank of New York's role in starting the New York Stock Exchange, the history of the Mellon National Bank and eventual merger that led to the institution that we know today. And you'll also hear about BNY Mellon's legacy of helping support the United States and global economies through financial crises. Our firm has acted as somewhat of a secret weapon during the Great Depression, the recession of 2008, and of course, most recently, the economic fallout from COVID-19. Another interesting point, Dr. Silla actually wrote one of the defining books on the history of interest rates here in the United States, and he and Todd take us through the history of interest rates and how that past might inform the future after the latest financial crisis that we've all been through. They, of course, touch on digital assets and the future of digital currencies for central banks, obviously a hot topic for our firm, which continues to lead on the question of digital assets. And of course, Dr. Silla gives us his take on the musical Hamilton, which he's seen no less than four times, by the way. So we think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation between our CEO, Todd Gibbons and Dr. Richard Silla. It's a really interesting look at our history and a little bit of a glimpse into the future as well. And so we hope you enjoy it. As always, listen, rate, review, give us your feedback wherever you listen to your podcast, and we look forward to seeing you at the next episode. Thanks again, everyone.
1: Thanks Dr. Silla for uh, joining us. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated our 237th Founders' Day uh, the Bank of New York was, if you can't do the math, was founded in 1784 by Alexander Hamilton. And that was a pretty meaningful moment for global financial history and, and certainly certainly for the U.S. financial history. Can you tell us about the historical uh, perspective of the uh, and significance of the moment? It must have been a very interesting time.
2: Well, I like to start off by saying that uh, uh, New York used to have a holiday called Evacuation Day. And that was in November. And it commemorated the departure of the British troops. Uh, At the end of the American Revolution, uh, the peace treaty was signed in September 1783, but the British Army remained in New York until November uh, 1783. And they had been there since 1776, and they'd made a bit of a shambles of the city. So New York was in kind of not great shape, and less than a year later, the Bank of New York opened its doors, so it was on the, the sort of recovery of New York City from the uh, mess the British had uh, left it in uh, during the American Revolution. And uh, I think that's, so the Bank of New York is one of those, you know, basic institutions of the country that uh, helped us recover from the devastation of the Revolutionary War. And uh, I think it started its business in June 1784, the actual foundation uh, was a, a businessman met, I think, in February, March, 1784, and decided that they needed a bank to uh, help the city recover. So uh, it's, it's a pretty basic institution in the United
1: States. Uh, it's a history we're really proud of. So Hamilton at the time, he was kind of uh, thought as someone engineering a financial uh, revolution with widespread implications. Um, How did this help influence the next few decades and, for that matter, even centuries in U.S. financial history?
2: Well, I think, you know, Hamilton wrote Robert Morris in uh, 1781 when Morris was the Congress's superintendent of finance. And Hamilton said, you know, we'll win this war, which was still going on then, uh, more by getting our finances in order than winning battles. And so Hamilton had thought, you know, from uh, this very young man in the army Uh, that the financial uh, uh, foundations were very important to establishing the United States. And uh, he founded the Bank of New York in 1784. Then in 1787, he was a member of the Constitutional Convention. And then he wrote the Federalist Papers, uh, three-fifths of them, along with James Madison and John Jay, uh, to get the Constitution ratified. And then in September 11th, uh, 19, uh, 1789, Hamilton becomes a treasury secretary. And over the next four years, I think it, basically most of it happened during Washington's administration, Hamilton engineers this financial revolution. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I think uh, from studying financial history uh, for several decades now, Uh, Financial revolution basically means the government itself gets its finances in order and is able to manage its debt. Uh, Then you have to have a a solid currency, a stable currency. Uh, You have to have a central bank. Uh, And if you do that right, then you're likely to get a, a banking system developing and securities markets, and a key part of it is corporations. So there's like about six components of a of a financial revolution. Earlier, it happened in the Dutch Republic it, and it happened in Britain. And Hamilton knew that financial history. And he saw that the Dutch had done very well economically and the British had done very well economically. Uh, so he thought the United States needed a similar thing. So, one of the first things he does as Treasury Secretary, his first great report on public credit in January 1790, you know, four months into office. He says the United States should assume the state debts left from the revolution and uh, should uh, have a restructuring of the Revolutionary War debt into what we today would call the modern treasury bond market with uh, three brand new issues of securities, a 6% bond, a 3% bond, and and a... six percent deferred bond that w- wouldn't pay interest for 10 years i sometimes say hamilton was the inventor mm-hmm. of the <laughs> zero coupon bond uh for 10 years and he did that because he didn't have enough money to pay the interest on it so he said you know after 10 years we'll pay interest on it uh so and so the and then he founds the bank of the united states that the calls for it at the end of january uh, december 1790. Congress enacts the bill in 1791, and the bank opens its doors at the end of 1791. So we have a, and and his mint report of uh, January 1791 uh, lays the basis for the U.S. dollar. It's defined both in terms of uh, silver and gold, so it's a hard-based currency. Um, And uh, so then what happens? I mean, the new treasury bonds hit the markets, and people start trading them uh, in 17, uh, 90, 91, uh, and the state debts are assumed and the bank of the United States is a, is a quasi public private corporation. It's 20% owned by the U S government, but it issues a lot of equity securities. And so you have a, a national debt of 70 some, uh, million and you have, a, a 10 million, uh, dollars of equity in the bank of the United States. People begin to trade the stocks and bonds, and the trading picks up so much that in the wake of a financial crisis, Wall Street's first crash in 1792, uh, a a group of brokers get together under the buttonwood tree in Wall Street right near the Bank of New York, and they found what becomes the New York Stock Exchange, a sort of better trading system. Meanwhile, uh, Hamilton's financial innovations prod the states into founding more banks, and so America's off and running uh, with a, uh, more and more banks year after year. And uh, the state government's also taking a cue from Hamilton's corporation, the Bank of the United States, the state governments begin to charter more corporations besides banks. And so the United States in just a few years gets all the key components of a modern financial system and it begins to grow very rapidly
1: from that point on. Wow, amazing. and. Uh... It's also I understand uh, that first that first equity traded under the buttonwood tree was actually Bank of New York stock. BK was the uh, was the, uh, the, the the first uh, issue. Um, so with that much going on in the financial world, it must have been an interesting what the political climate was in the United States and the impact in some of his, um, uh, you know, some of the other the likes of Jefferson and Madison. Um, how did that uh, how did that develop?
2: Well, I think it's very interesting. I've actually thought about it over the years because uh, the, Hamilton's financial innovations were, I think, really very good for the country. They pointed us in the right direction, you know. And since that time, uh, uh, partly due to our financial expertise, we've become the sort of richest, most highly developed economy in in world history. And so, uh, if this started, as I think it did, with Hamilton's innovations in 17. 17- uh, 90, 91, 92. Uh why was it that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, uh, began to oppose Hamilton? Uh, and they did. And, and Madison is particularly interesting because he was an ally of Hamilton in the 1780s. Uh, they worked together to, uh, get the new constitution and then they did their best to explain it and defend it and get it ratified with the federalist papers. Uh, so Madison kind of does a, a 180-degree turn uh, sort of in 1790 and begins to oppose Hamilton's measures. Um, I think one of the reasons is that Madison by then is a Virginia politician is not a, a national reformer and his friends in Virginia don't particularly like uh, Hamilton's policy. So I think there's two problems. Uh, one is Hamilton himself is known as an opponent of slavery Uh, And uh, secondly, Hamilton is working to strengthen the federal government. And it seems that to Southerners, the main threat from what was going on uh, in the national capital was that Hamilton was strengthening the federal government.
1: It must have impacted ultimately where the location for for our capital ended up, right? I mean, what was, can you give a little color around that, how we ended up in D.C.? Well, that was a you know the
2: capital in 1790, uh, 1789 and 90 when Hamilton comes into office is in New York City, uh, and uh, d- d- right down there on Wall Street. In fact, the uh, the old City Hall was converted to a national capital, so the first Congress met down there. Uh, Hamilton wanted to have the federal government assume the debts of the states. He thought that would be a clean way of lightening the burdens on some states that were overburdened with debt, and uh, uh, Southerners didn't like that. The story is that Virginia had paid some of its debts and thought it was going to have to pay not only its own debts, but some other debts. This is not really a true story because there was going to be an accounting of which states contributed more and which less to the American Revolution, and there would be an adjustment. So if Virginia paid some of its debts, it we'd get credit for that in the adjustment. But anyway, the maybe some people in Virginia didn't understand that. So they opposed the, the assumption of state debts. And Hamilton thought that was a key part of his program. Uh, so this Jefferson told the story of meeting Hamilton, I think was in May or June of 1790. And Hamilton is uh, worried that the, the assumption plan won't go through. And Jefferson, who hasn't been back from France for very long, he's the secretary of state, says, I'll invite you and, and James Madison over for dinner at my place, which is on Maiden Lane right across the street from the Federal Reserve Bank in New York now. Uh, it's marked with a plaque in the wall. Uh, So they have this dinner in June 1790, and Madison says, I won't support your plan, Hamilton, but I have enough influence with other uh, Southern congressmen that I can talk them into supporting the plan. So Jefferson brokered this with the dinner, and Hamilton and Madison agreed that uh, assumption would be a good thing for the United States, but they wanted something in return. Uh, Remember, Jefferson and Madison are Virginia slaveholders. They wanted the national capital to be closer to the South. And so they proposed that it be moved to the uh, Potomac River, uh, not too far from uh, where they lived, and uh, uh, that was the deal. Hamilton would back the movement of the Capitol in return for Madison uh, backing Hamilton's plan to get the states' debts assumed by the federal government. And so it, there was nothing on the banks of the Potomac except the mosquito-infested swamp. So they had to. Uh, uh, plan over 10 years to establish the capital, which we now call Washington, D.C., and in the, those 10 years, the capital moved a little closer to the South, to Philadelphia, and so uh, when we go to Philadelphia today, we see a lot of the old government buildings from the 1790s. For 10 years, Philadelphia was the capital, but then Washington, D.C. opened for business in late 1800, and John Adams was actually the first president to live in the White House. He only lived there for two or three months before he, Jefferson, uh, Replaced him as president, but that's the kind of story. The, so again, finance, uh, getting the state debts assumed, had a lot to do with where we uh, look uh, see our national government today.
1: That's incredible! What a fantastic compromise. Well, it was it was great that we built off the financial um, uh, foundation that uh, that Hamilton had uh, had the vision to see. So I know you've uh, you've attended the the show Hamilton on Broadway, four times. Uh, Four times, okay. more than us, and we're we're big we're big bats. So, um, any thoughts around uh, Miranda's incredible ly- rap lyrics? Did he uh, did he get the history right?
2: I, I think it's mostly right. There, there's a few liberties were taken. Uh, sometimes people that were involved in a particular conversation weren't the actual people involved, but uh, there was no point in having a few extra actors and roles to play. So, some of people that weren't. Uh, visiting Hamilton on one occasion uh, uh, were uh, in the play were, were in the musical were what uh, uh, portrayed as as being present at, at some particular meetings but I think for the most part it's it's not the, my, my opinion not everyone agrees I think it's a fairly accurate presentation of what Hamilton did you know his role in the revolution his background from the West Indies uh the key role at the Constitutional Convention, and uh, uh, and, and of course, he was a, a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army during the war and actually led a bayonet charge at Yorktown. I think that's one of the reasons I got so interested in Hamilton, because I, I couldn't believe that this founding father, you know, I thought he was just a statesman, read a lot of books and wrote a lot of papers, but no, I mean, he led several hundred troops at Yorktown to capture a British redoubt And that made it possible for the Americans to win that battle, which was a kind of a key battle where the British decided that it wasn't worth fighting the Americans anymore. So he he just he was a man of action, but he was also an intellectual. Uh, And uh, Miranda, I think, captures that in the in the musical. Uh, Of course, there's a lot of other stuff there about with the dancing and uh, uh, the ladies and all that. But uh, you know, it's I think he did a very good
1: job. I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Maybe I'll go back just for another history lesson. Um, the um, you, you know w- w- we're a global institution that has our roots in in New York City. I mean, we've been here throughout our uh, throughout our history. Uh, the city is going through an incredible time. I know that you've served at a number of fine institutions here in in, in New York. And as we as we uh, as we work our way through the um, the pandemic. What lessons do you think that we've learned um, and, and how do you see the future from that? And and specifically, if you thought back to the impact on finance in cities, for example, with the Spanish flu, are there lessons that we should be incorporating into our think- our own thinking right now as we move out of the pandemic into more of a normal environment?
2: Well, I think the history of New York City is that it, it goes through various crises, uh, but it always seems to recover and, and come back, you know, uh, even even more than come back, it becomes vibrant again and and uh, advances. And, and you know, I started out by saying that uh, uh, the Bank of New York was founded to help New York recovery from uh, recover from the devastation of the American Revolution when the British occupied the city for uh, seven or eight years. And um, uh, there was you know a, a fire. There were there were pandemics, of course, before there were yellow fever. Uh, uh, outbreaks in New York in the 1790s and in other American cities um, and so New York has an experience with pandemics or epidemics anyway and uh, there were fires in the 1830s and there was a lot of disagreement uh, in New York City about uh, what the position should be in the Civil War uh, there were some draft riots and things like that uh, and then there were you know financial problems of the city. Uh, uh, later on, in uh, the 1970s, I remember in particular, I wasn't living in New York then, but New York City was almost went broke there in the middle of the 1970s. And what I see is that, uh, as in the very first recovery from the revolution itself, finance played a leading role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the financiers go back to the 1970s, uh, and New York was in tough shape uh, financially, and the... Financial leaders of New York came together and worked out a plan in conjunction with the, the politicians to uh, restore the city's finances. So in my view that New York has recovered many times and will again, and finance will play a leading role, I think, in in, in that recovery.
1: I, I have to agree with you. And I, when I've seen the resilience of the workforce in the city and also the leaders in the city, I'm highly confident that, uh, that we'll be back and probably sooner than people had expected. Let's, let's, uh, let's shift to uh, another topic. I know it's near and dear to you. You've done a lot around interest rates. And there's an awful lot of debate now among economists about inflation and interest rates. And um, And I think it's it's, more, it's starting to become a little more split than it, than it had been. I don't think in my career that I've ever heard the Fed mention so frequently how inflation is kind of welcome and it's transient. Uh, in some ways, it's similar to the, the the comments that were made in the late '60s before we did actually see uh, inflation. It was kind con- the, the, the the Fed uh, at the time was indicating that they only thought things were going to be transient. Any thoughts about it? is there any lesson to be learned here? Any thoughts about where we might see um, interest rates going in the future?
2: Well, I'm a co-author of a book called The History of Interest Rates, which actually covers uh, several thousand years of interest rate history. And as a result of that, I've gotten a lot of uh, media uh, calls uh, uh, to discuss where we were. And one of the points I make is that right now we seem to have the lowest interest rates that we've had in 4,000 or 5,000 years of history. Uh, And this seems to be related to the, the actions of the central bank. Now, like you, I'm a little. I always thought central bankers were the ones who were uh, considered to be uh, funny duddies because they wanted the inflation rate to be zero. And so, it is a kind of unique experience when the central bankers in the last uh, 20 or 30 years started saying we should aim for an inflation rate of two uh, percent. I think has been the common target. That that was really unusual. And uh, I know a little bit of the reason why that somehow labor markets work better if there's a little bit of inflation. Uh, But I couldn't really understand why you you should sort of make that a target. Well, I think what I see today is that the central banks, particularly our Federal Reserve, seem to think that the pandemic caused unemployment to go up a lot. And we should forget about everything else uh, until we get back to full employment, as we had before the pandemic. And that has led them to say, well, you know, there might be a, you know, a little bit of inflation, but we didn't have as much inflation as we wanted before, so we can have a little bit more now uh, and uh, even things out. And I, I'm a little puzzled by it, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, my view is that the Federal Reserve doesn't seem to uh, care as much about inflation as I think maybe they should. I remember, I'm old enough to remember the inflation of the 1970s which ended up with double-digit inflation. The late Paul Volcker was a a friend of mine. He did some teaching with me at NYU when he was a visiting professor there. Um, Neither he nor I could understand why 2% was a magic number and and what's wrong with zero. Uh, I think uh, what I see is that modern central bankers, Ben Bernanke would be a classic example, remembered the 1930s where deflation was a, a big problem in the 1930s. And so modern central bankers sort of think that deflation is the worst thing in the world. And in order to avoid getting even close to it, we should have a little bit of positive inflation. Uh, that seems to be the reasoning. Um, I, as an economic historian, I know we had deflation in the late 19th century along with very rapid economic growth in the United States. So deflation in general is is not a, a the worst thing that can happen to an economy. Uh, but I think that history, is not really uh, consulted by modern central bankers. They just remember the 1930s. And therefore, they want to avoid that sort of uh, deflation, uh, which was terrible. Uh, and therefore, they're willing to uh, allow m- uh, more inflation now. Uh, I think the markets may have something to say about that. Uh, mm-hmm. That is, if if the inflation rate picks up, and this is what I remember from the 19. 19- late 1960s and 1970s, the markets sensed that we were having more inflation, and so they marked up interest rates. Uh, The Fed can fight that, but I think in the 1970s, when the Fed tried to uh, deal with rising interest rates, uh, the inflation rate got worse. Uh, And so we ended up with stagflation, and by the end of the 70s, we had double-digit inflation. Paul Volcker came in and saved us from that. Uh, I I think the... uh, today's central bankers are a little too sanguine about uh, inflation being temporary. And some of the recent data are just based on a, a low base a year ago because of the pandemic. I mean, there are a lot of excuses made for why let's not worry about inflation. Uh, I myself worry about it a little more than the central banks do.
1: Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. It's, it sounds like this could end badly, similar to what we might have seen. We shouldn't forget the history of what we've seen, you know, 50 years ago or so. Right. Um, so the, uh, we talk a little bit about innovation. In order to survive for centuries, our firm certainly had to be uh, innovative, um, and, uh, and, and as well as resilient. And, and resiliency is something that's being discussed more and more, and it's actually understood more and more, especially given the threats from cyber and other outside uh, uh, types of risks. Um, so we've gone through, um, uh, you know, many of the 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 big three. I'll call the 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 great the Great Depression. Two of them that I've that you and I have been involved in the Great Recession of 2008. Now the pandemic. Um, many people don't really appreciate what we've done through some of these. Days, BNY and Mellon. Uh, do you have a perspective, and you could help with our listeners understand how institutions, including our firm, have played a role helping support the U.S. economy through some of these difficult times and the operations of the global financial system.
2: Right. Well, I, I think that, you know, going back a long ways, the the early Bank of New York was, a, and I think it's maintained this reputation throughout its history, as being a rock-solid institution that, you know, had a strong balance sheet, that uh, did, didn't take undue risk, but it could be innovative in some ways. The one of the innovations of the early history of the Bank of New York is in the, in the I think it was in 1830, uh, the leaders of the Bank of New York founded the New York Life Insurance and Trust Company. Uh, and what's interesting about that, of course, it shows that you, there was a need for uh, insurance and trust companies. So you know those were innovations in themselves. In colonial America, there wasn't much in the way of insurance or trust services. Uh, and what's interesting about that particular uh innovation of the 1830s is that in 1922 the banking merged with the the trust company new york life insurance and trust company that it had done and that showed that you know then you could put uh, banks and trust companies together and as the country got wealthier of course there was need for these uh, trust services uh, uh asset management i guess is what uh, people call it today uh and so uh That was, uh, and then I think, uh, you know, coming up more closer in time, we had an over-regulated banking system from the 1930s, I would say, into the 1980s, and uh, banks could only grow um, because of regulation through mergers and other types of innovative uh, activities, and Bank of New York grew kind of quickly as uh, regulation was relaxed a little bit. Sometimes it grew before the regulations were relaxed just to better serve its uh, customers through achieving scale. Uh, but I think in the last 30 or 40 years, and you probably know this very well, uh, there's been a huge amount of uh, uh, merger activity and uh, the growth of the Bank in New York, which was for a long time, it was by no means the biggest bank in New York. It may have been the best bank in New York, but it wasn't the biggest bank in New York. Uh, and I uh, can argue with you on that point. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that's, I, I think uh, Hamilton would like that to say that the Bank of New York was, uh, throughout its history, one, one of the best banks in New York, if not the country. Uh, so anyway, I think um, uh, what I see is that, you know, in terms of that early innovation with the trust company and insurance, the financial system becomes more complex over time. Uh, banks have to adjust to that. And I, when I look at the Bank of New York today, I remember when I came to New York 30 years ago, there were branches of the Bank of New York around the city. Uh, and they disappeared. And I think the Bank of New York has, is, in, in our modern huge financial system, has carved out a kind of you know important role uh, as a uh, servicer of other fi- financial institutions and assets rather than being a retail bank. And so it you know it's it's been able to reinvent itself and find a comfortable niche in the in the modern financial arrangements where it, it kind of plays a key role. I think you have what 40 trillion of assets in custody and management. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, what do you say, custody and administration? I think. Uh,
1: right.
2: so, so you've become a huge institution and playing a specialized but very important role in the financial system. So I would say, getting back to your main point, was that an institution has to be able to adjust to the changes that take place in the economy around it. And uh, banks that have lasted for 200 years or more uh were able to do that. They were able to grow with the country and adjust to uh, changes and trends and find a comfortable uh, position uh, in the financial system uh, and do a good job of it.
1: Yeah, you make a lot of good points there. At One time we were a universal bank and we chose to focus more on the uh, you know the payments and clearing and the the transaction banking side side of uh, a banking. I'd kind of get your thoughts about this. Most of the uh, many institutions continue to be universalist, and uh, they've opted to perform a wide variety of functions. While we encapsulate, although it's a diverse set of those transaction banking services, it is a more focused approach. How do you think that sets us apart, and and, and where do you see that? Uh, uh, where do you see the tra- trajectory of the industry? You think it'll continue to go universal, and you'll have a few focused institutions? How
2: do you think, uh, and have you given that some thought? Well, I have. I, I think the, you know, Henry Kaufman, I was the Henry Kaufman professor at NYU for, for many years, uh, uh, Henry Kaufman professor of the history of financial institutions and markets. Henry and I are good friends. And he thinks that um, uh, these modern universal banks are not so easy to manage, uh, that they, they can have if you try to be all things to all people, you, you may have some problems somewhere in that. He also thinks modern banks are, uh, especially the universal type banks are, are, are way too large, you know and, and uh, so they're difficult to manage. I think the focused approach probably can lead to better management. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, for many years, uh, economic historians talked about the Anglo-Saxon markets, banks and markets model. Versus the German universal banking model, where uh, the German universal banks did did all things for for their clients, uh, and these were held up as two ways to go. And uh, I, I think the the recent history shows that if you examine European banks, you know, that have in general more of the universal banking model, the European banks have been having a lot of troubles in the last uh, ten to twenty years, and uh, uh, so I think Henry Kaufman's on to a good point there when he says, the you know, it's, it's just difficult to manage. Think of a bank, you know, all over the world, you're, you're doing all things to all people all over the world. Uh, but you know this better than I do. Somebody's got to be in charge and make, you know, take the responsibility at the top, the CEO. So I, I think there are risks to the universal banking model, especially when banks are very international. I I think the, the focused model is is probably the wave of the future. Uh uh, I think universal banking is not as uh, an attractive a model as it was maybe 30 or 40 years ago.
1: thanks that that debate will probably go back and forth as uh, as conglomerates always the debate around conglomerates always that's um, you, you raised some comments and it was you basically said the banking system was probably overregulated uh, you know post the um, Great Depression in the 30s and the 80s, I think is where you where you had indicated. Um, I'd kind of get, love your perspective on the cycles of regulation because it certainly has had an impact on how we've managed and, and, and formed ourselves, uh, and and how important is regulation either either as a as preventing or perhaps in some instances even maybe leading to some uh, financial crashes. And you know, as I referred about that, if you go back before the Great Financial Crisis. Uh, regulation had led to a shadow banking system that was taking on a lot of leveraged type of uh, risk outside of the traditional banking system. And I'm wondering if you see any parallel today at what we're starting to see with fintechs entering the transaction banking side where counterparty risk is 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 probably not as well known um, or or the, um, uh, the the importance of resiliency and in, in the in just the investment in infrastructure. So just generally your thoughts around regulation um, and and how you know, how it's not 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 too cold not too warm but but uh, but just about right
2: well the the 1930s of course the depression was a disaster and about you know something like 10,000 banks failed from 1930 to 33 and uh, uh, so I, in terms of cycles of regulation if you have a major crisis like that you can probably expect that uh, regulation is going to become more strict. Uh, whether it's wise regulation or not, you know that is more open to question. But the, the fact that regulation will be beefed up in the wake of a crisis is kind of one of the staples, I think, of financial history. Um, so um, I think the regulations of the 1930s began to cause problems for banks in uh, the 1950s and 60s uh, when uh, our banking system was pretty much organized along state lines, and banks, you know, uh, in many states, banks had to operate out of only one office. Uh, and this didn't make a lot of sense when banks were trying to grow. Um, you know, for one thing, uh, if you keep a bank small, but you have big firms in the economy, it becomes harder for the small bank to make a loan to a big firm because, uh, you know, regulation said you can't lend more than 10% of your. Uh, money to any one particular institution, so the banks were sort of hemmed in by anti-branching regulations. Uh, I think for a time you might be able to branch within New York City or parts of New York City, and only later on could you you know open branches upstate. And then finally, we got in 1994. You know, and not so long ago, we got interstate banking. Congress passed the uh, that law in 1994. So I mean. The regulations of the 1930s caused more and more problems for banks in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And the banks worked to have those regulations relaxed. Uh, We repealed Glass-Steagall, which separated commercial and investment banking in 1999. Um, Now, uh, I think it was wrong to say, but people said it, that the repeal of Glass-Steagall is what caused the 2007 to 2009 crisis. Uh, Actually, uh, that didn't seem to be true, you know, Lehman Brothers was not a commercial bank and it was an investment bank and they existed before that. So um, I think it's it's easy to claim that a deregulation of sorts uh, causes a, a crisis uh, and of course we got Dodd-Frank in the wake of the 2007-9 crisis. Um, I haven't quite understood that, Frank. I mean, it seems like they're still implementing some of its provisions. It's it's not a even though it was a stack of pay, paper, you know, a thousand or two thousand pages high, it didn't really settle a lot of issues. It left a lot to be interpreted and argued about uh, ever since then. Uh, so I, I, you know, if the banks are overregulated, you're going to get things like shadow banking. I think we see that in not just in the United States, but in China. I'm told that the where the government regulates the banks, the there's a shadow banking system growing there. Uh, financiers are good at, at finding ways around regulations. Uh, the banks may not be able to do it on their own, but uh, uh, you know, they'll find ways uh, off balance sheets and things like that. Bankers did that, Uh leading up to the crisis 10 or 12 years ago. We want the right balance of regulation. I I do believe that banks have to be regulated because, you know, the early banks, they wanted to hold as little capital as possible and Mm -hmm. they wanted to hold as few reserves as possible. And that often got them into trouble. So I think that uh, regulation is justified, but we can have over-regulation and, uh, uh, or under regulation. I, I think that we're still searching two or 300 years into the history of American banking. We're still searching for the right balance of regulation, you know, in terms of not making the industry uh, uh, unsafe. Uh, you want to make it safe, but not so safe that you prevent innovation and serving the uh, growth needs of the economy, which is what banks are really about. Uh, you know, I believe in finance-led growth. In, in many places in the world, finance was a kind of key driver of economic growth, and we don't want to lose that uh, um, ability of the financial system to uh, innovate and even drive economic growth.
1: Yeah, don't 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 kill the golden goose in the process. But you make a very interesting point that regulation kind of. Uh, you know, it, it it goes back and forth given circumstances. So we went through the the financial the great financial crisis, and Dodd Frank followed to try to prevent something like that happening again. So as we've just gone through the pandemic, and initially it was the the, the it, it was triggering a financial crisis, which was managed through. The banks seem to have come into it uh, much much better off, and maybe maybe grant some credit to. What was done in, uh, under Dodd Frank with the capital and liquidity regulations? I know for ourselves, it was all about our clients, our our colleagues, uh, and also having the 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 the, um, the strength of our balance sheet to support our clients through what was going to be a very difficult time. And that was our mantra internally. You know, March of two thousand twenty, when things really uh, really started happening. Do you think there is additional regulation going to come into the financial system because of what we just went through?
2: I don't really see that you know much discussion of uh, that you know the the pandemic crisis itself uh, was a, a need uh, re- revealed a need for for more regulation. Um, as you say, I think the banks handled it pretty well. Um, and American banks, in particular, even before the pandemic broke out, the American banks had recovered from the um, financial crisis much better than European banks did. Uh, and so I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that maybe Dodd-Frank had some good effects because, uh, you know, typically many bankers will say, well, you know, regulation is just too strict. Uh, and so it, it's nice to think that uh, a leading banker thinks that there were some good points to, to Dodd-Frank. Um, I I don't really see that the, you know, the pandemic crisis came from outside the economic and the financial system. And, uh, it, it doesn't seem to me to reveal any uh, flaws that need to be corrected by regulation. Uh, in fact, I think we should congratulate our banks and staying strong throughout the crisis and, and keeping the financial system running pretty carefully, I remember running well. Uh, you know, I, I watched the stock market flop out of bed late last February and into March uh, 2020, and it looked like things might be getting bad. Uh, But then somehow the Fed stepped in and working, you know, the Fed works through the banks and and the central bank, you know, going back to Hamilton and his financial revolution, you have a central bank and a banking system and the securities markets. And the the Fed came in there and did what was necessary to uh, stem that crisis that rose for one month uh, uh, in a year or so ago. Uh, So I think that, you know, we should probably, instead of thinking about the the, the pandemic, uh, show that we need more banking regulation, I think we should pat ourselves on the back a little bit for saying that the financial system actually
1: worked pretty well. No, I, I appreciate that comment. We're quite proud of our role in it. We we are the operator of a number of the facilities that got liquidity where it needed through the government. The primary dealer credit facility operates on our, on our infrastructure. You, you, the municipal liquidity facility that helped out some of the states and municipalities, um, the PPP program. So a number of facilities that we work closely. And the, and the other thing we're quite proud of is we're important to the infrastructure of uh, market infrastructure. And we were up, up and running throughout, even though we did go to a work from home. But we're, we, we, we had a, it was a proven level of resiliency that, that I'm very proud of. And by the way, the, the new level of re- resiliency, it's not just about operations and infrastructure. It's also about your people. And your, you know, and your people being able to uh, to get it done while they're dealing with, with some of the, you know, the the inevitable concerns that the personal concerns that they had during that time. But let me let me switch the topic, uh, Professor. Um, and we've been talking about innovation a lot. Um, and we recently made a noteworthy uh, uh, announcement where uh, we're uh, starting the kind of the first digital asset unit here at BNY Mellon. We announced that back in February. Uh, so it will both it will be a, a, a an opportunity to custodize, tokenize, and manage, administrate value um, uh, digital assets. From your vantage point, what's the significance of this announcement to uh, in financial history, and how might it shape things as we look as we look forward? Is it a, is it a yawn, or is this something is this something much more significant?
2: Well, I've been a skeptic of um, things like Bitcoin, but sometimes I look in the mirror and say well you're just an old guy and you don't you, you don't understand what's going on anymore but i think the digital revolution is, is something really big and we may be in the early stages of it um, so i i think the you know there's going to be digital assets um, uh, almost everybody has digital assets though my my computer is stuffed full of uh, papers I've written and drafts and things like that. So I think almost everybody in the world has some digital asset uh, uh, of one sort or another, but now they're innovating things like uh, non-fungible tokens, I guess. And then these are going to be ways in which you can invest uh, and maybe store wealth. So um, uh, even though I'm skeptical of some of these things, I think this is maybe the wave of the future uh, and that, uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that a bank like yours is, is getting interested in, in the growth of this market because that's, you know, I, I said before, banks have to adjust with changes in the world and the ones that do the best job of adjusting to the the, the trends in the world. Sometimes it means you want to be safer, but sometimes you want to go out and, and take advantage of some new opportunities. Uh, so I, I think that uh, uh, despite the fact I don't understand it all, uh, that I can kind of sense from having studied economic development over long periods of time that this is the way the world is going and uh, people who understand more about it than I do will you know get in and take advantage of it and, and perform a service by you know offering uh, uh, facilities for handling digital assets.
1: yeah it's, as as we look at it there's really there's 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 multiple components of it so, one is just to digitize something that, and in fact, as you as you point out, uh, um, the current currency, central bank currency, really is. A, it's an electronic. It's a digital asset today. But for by far and large, the most dollar volume of transactions are done solely electronically. But as we think through it a little bit more, it's about digitizing securities so they can trade twenty four seven, or or digitizing the central bank currency. And then you also have the cryptocurrency aspect to it, which is um, um, you know with something like something like Bitcoin, where it's probably a less effective payment system. But there are there certainly are institutions and individuals, in it, and and its value is probably telling us something that are concerned about that earlier conversation we had around inflation. Um, that maybe this is maybe this is an alternative to holding wealth uh, in gold, is to holding it in 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 in, in cryptocurrencies. We're finding enough interest. I'm not going to speculate on its value or what it should or shouldn't be. But if investors see it as a potential hedge, whether it's a general account of an insurance company um, or, or, you know, a, a personal investor sees it as, a, as a, uh, a diversifying investment, we want to be there to be able to have them hold it safely, value it appropriately and move it safely. Um, so the counterparty risk you know, involvement is quite, quite substantial. Um, but I, I do agree with your point that um, the, the world is just going to digitize faster and faster and faster. So we can debate whether an NFT has any value or not, but it's probably not much worth, worthy of that debate. Um, so we're kind of coming to uh, the end of our time. Um, I certainly appreciate all of the the insights, the points that you made. Is there any, anything I should have asked you or anything else you would really want to uh, uh, touch on in the last few minutes here?
2: Well, just to pick up on your your last point about uh, the, the all the digital currencies uh, coming out, cryptocurrencies, uh, I'm reminded a little bit of the U.S. between the 1830s and the 1860s when uh, we got rid of our second bank of the United States, the sort of successor to Hamilton's first bank of the United States, and we went in for free banking uh, without any central bank. And the situation then was the banking system continued to grow so that by there were maybe six or 700 banks in the 1830s, and there were about 1600 banks by 1860. Each one of these banks issued uh, several denominations of banknotes. And so the US currency supply was so sort of chaotic. And you know, the Civil War was used as an excuse to uh, uh, t- take away the rights of banks to issue their own banknotes. And sort of make all the currency of the country an obligation of the federal government. Uh, the, this got rid of some of the currency chaos of that time. Uh, I I think today we're talking about central bank digital currencies, and I have thought that with all the different cryptocurrencies coming out, we're creating a situation like it was in the 1840s and 50s in the U.S. It, you know, sort of currency chaos and uh, uh, or crypto chaos, let's call it, and probably central bank uh, Digital currencies would be the solution here, just like the US uh, uh, going to a uniform national currency in the Civil War. Uh, the worry is, of course, and I think this is behind the cryptocurrencies, since ties in with our discussion of inflation, that um, uh, you know, since the 1970s, we've been off, or uh, maybe even since the 1930s, we've been off a metallic standard. Hamilton put in the dollar linked to gold and silver, and that was a way of keeping currency stability. But we got rid of that in the 1970s and, and people now worry that we're on a totally fiat money system and the Federal Reserve can conjure money just with by uh, hitting a few buttons on the computer. And so uh, people's trust in the stability of currency, uh, of national currencies, is is uh, going down, I think. And that explains some of the attraction of the cryptocurrencies. Uh, I hope that, that the... The fact that we're on a fiat currency doesn't lead us into uh, an inflationary situation, but I think some of the interest of, in crypto is uh, because of the uh, feeling people have, that there's no real constraint on a, what the Federal Reserve can do in conjuring up money, and that, that may mean that the value of the dollar will fall, and
1: so they're looking for some safe place to
2: uh,
1: store wealth. I agree with you, Professor. So. One one last question on the topic: Can the can the U.S. government regulate cryptocurrencies, and if and, and how? Uh,
2: I don't really know. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure they'll they they can figure out how to regulate it, but I I think the the best way that they will think of to regulate it is by creating their own cryptocurrency, which will then uh, tend to dominate the wide variety of cryptocurrencies that are being invented now uh, the cryptocurrencies may, you know, exist as a digital asset. I don't, I don't think they're really such a great medium of exchange right now. Uh, and that's what money is supposed to be a medium of exchange. Uh, it may be a little more attractive as a store of uh, value. Uh, but, um, since there are limits, I guess, to how much cryptocurrency can be created. Uh, but I think that if, you know, if, if the central banks their their way of dealing with cryptocurrencies will be to try to come up with a digital currency of their own and uh and then the cryptocurrency may continue to exist as some sort of asset to invest in uh which may you know be a store of value uh but i i, I don't think uh you know I, I don't expect the uh buy bitcoins and use them as currency in, in, the remaining years of my
1: life. <laughs> so I, I think I think great insight. If somebody wants to invest in cryptocurrency, it's not in order to to make efficient payments. It's in order to somehow get away from fiat currencies and, and invest in. I
2: think mean, that's common. the real worry—the fiat currency problem.
1: Well, Professor, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. I think it was uh, you hit on all the topics that uh, that I wanted to hear about, and your the breadth of knowledge of of the detailed knowledge of the, of the founding of this comp- of this country and, and our company is, is, is fantastic and hugely appreciated. You know, thanks for all your time. You're welcome. It was my pleasure.
0: Hey everyone, Tom here again. Thanks again for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, uh, keep listening on Apple podcasts on Spotify or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, if you're willing, leave a review or a rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and bnymelon.com. Thanks again for joining. We'll see you on the next episode.